holiday tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Did you know there are over 10,000 wine grape varieties worldwide? Here's to thousands of gift possibilities. My go-to holiday wine is Chardonnay. I love it with turkey and potatoes. Pile on the gravy. Let me show you our more than 8,000 party-perfect wines that are in your budget and out of this world. Whether you're entertaining or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection with you this holiday. Now offering same-day delivery at TotalWine.com. Cheers! Welcome to the More Perfect Union, the podcast that offers real debate without the hate. From the right, we have DJ McGuire, a progressive conservative from Suffolk, Virginia. And from the left side of the aisle tonight, we have Greg Matuzak, a common sense liberal who is not retiring. I want to spell <laughs> all those rumors right now from Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Rebecca Kushmeider, a progressive and pro choice feminist from Kensington, Maryland. And I'm Kevin Kelton, a passionate moderate living in Los Angeles, California. And tonight we're joined by David Daly, a senior fellow for Fair Vote, the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com, and the author of Rat Fucked, the true... Holiday tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. My friends still rave about the Prosecco I brought last year. Let me help make your Friendsgiving unforgettable. Bordeaux is one of the world's most popular red blends, made from Cabernet, Cab Franc, and Merlot. It also makes the perfect gift for your picky boss. Having turkey and all the fixings? I suggest an easy-drinking Pinot Noir. For white drinkers, try an unoaked Chardonnay. Whether you're entertaining or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection with you this holiday. Now offering same-day delivery at TotalWine.com. Cheers! story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. So uh, before we get to the uh, the news of the week, Rebecca and DJ both uh, dropped a couple of articles on moreperfectunionpodcast.com this week. Rebecca, let's start with you and your Pop Goals the Political Culture column this week. Yeah, I was talking about how the uh, the calls for civility and discourse are reminding me rather unsettlingly of the behavior modification techniques used by cult leaders in fringe religions. And uh, I found out from a friend of mine who owns a restaurant, Pape DC on 14th Street. Check it out if you love Indian food. Um, but she informed me that the reason Republicans and Democrats don't get kicked out of restaurants for ideological reasons is that political affiliation is considered a protected class within the District of Columbia. So you can wear your MAGA hat to a restaurant and still get served. <laughs> And DJ, you wrote two articles this week on MorePerfectUnionPodcast.com. What were they about? Well, the um, the first one was in regards to the uh, Janus versus Ask Me decision, uh, where I noted it was a bit narrower than people presumed it would be on left and right. The other was actually an update of a piece I did about a month and a half ago in light of some of the things we'll talk about regarding how just essentially for a lot of – it was sent, sent as a message to pro-lifers, I'm afraid. None of my fellow pro-lifers actually read the damn thing about how <laughs> how we have to move beyond just <laughs> writing fetal protection into law because we we need to recognize that for millions of Americans and rightly so it is an infringement on their person. And when government infringes on someone's rights in any other realm, there is some sort of compensation for it. The pro-life movement has never really talked about compensating women for infringement upon their rights. And I – that post, which I updated, was an exploration as to what that compensation should include. I had a discussion with uh, with uh, Rebecca a couple of days 
a couple of days ago. She mentioned a cost category that I had not included. I included it and used that as an opportunity to update the piece. Very cool. Okay, so now let's get to the news that is burning in everyone's minds this week, and it's in the judicial branch of the United States government, specifically the final couple of uh, decisions read for the 2017-2018 term, and then, of course, the surprise, or not surprise, depending on who, were, who you are, announcement of um, Anthony Kennedy's retirement, uh, which becomes effective, I believe, sometime in July. So uh, what do you think, guys? Is this going to be the end of life as we know it on planet Earth? Depends. Do you have a uterus or not? (laughs) Okay. Well, does everybody agree that uh, it probably means an end to uh, Roe versus Wade, if not a full official uh, repeal of it, that they're going to hollow it out bit by bit over the next 10 years? I think it'll be different. I'm not certain. Well, for one thing, Roe versus Wade as much as everybody likes to talk about it, Roe versus Wade is not the actual judicial decision that matters. It's Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Whether Casey will be fully reversed or whether it will be, you know, dinged up or changed really depends on Chief Justice Roberts. And I'm not sure Chief Justice Roberts is going to necessarily reverse it lock, stock and barrel. Well, I think I and I differ with you on the question of of it being Casey versus it being Roe. Um, I'm looking at the abortion or the uh, the uh, the restriction that was passed in Iowa earlier this year uh, with the heartbeat bill, and you know that that's ripe for lawsuits. That's why it was passed, actually, and it's going to make its way up. And one of the findings in Roe is that prior to the point of fetal viability. There is not a compelling state interest in seeing that the pregnancy is continued. And that's that's always been the line, this idea of viability. And I've thought for many years that the science is going to change what is considered viability and what is not. And, and bringing that into evidence and saying that we know more than we did 40 years ago is actually going to have merit. I, and I, you know, indisputably so. And I think it's it's going to change what the definition of compelling state interest is and at what point that interest kicks in. I would say just just as a quick thing, though, Roe Roe versus Wade was not the case that established viability as the touch point. They had used a trimester system, and it was one of the reasons Sandra Day O'Connor initially kept railing against it in her opinions on abortion cases throughout the 1980s. It was why so many people got confused and thought she would actually reverse it. It was, as I understand it, it was Casey versus Planned Parenthood that replaced the trimester system with the viability trigger point. Well, either way, this you know that's a, it's a moving target regardless. And the fact is that what we're getting into is whether or not people consent to be pregnant. And you know, like you and I were talking about earlier this week in a discussion that I'm now referencing that nobody else here was privy to. Um, sorry, um, you know, the <laughs> consent to pregnancy is not a minor thing. You know, anti-choicers will often talk about, well, you just want to abort this because it, you know it's inconvenient to be pregnant. Well, pregnancy and postpartum—that's almost a year of your life. It's not just inconvenient; it's it's major. It's a bodily endeavor that is really unparalleled by anything else. I know for a fact because I've gone through it uh, several times, and uh, you know, to remove informed consent from pregnancy strikes me as so cruel and so inhumane to those who are already born that that far outweighs the concern of a pre-viability 
fetus. Okay, but, okay, but let's. I don't know that we should necessarily be litigating the yeah. specific case yet. Even though everybody is talking about uh, Roe and the potential for th- for overturning that, that is not the only case that this new open seat, whoever Trump can wedge into it, uh, might affect. Uh, gerrymandering. There was a big case that came down this week. That's why we're having David on this week. David, could you give us a little background of the case that was decided or pseudo-decided? And uh, and then where do you think this issue might go, especially in light of the fact that we're probably looking at a slightly more conservative court next term? Well, first, thank you for having me on. Um, I think that the court had the most perfect opportunity that it has had in front of it in decades to cure this problem of extreme toxic partisan gerrymandering, a problem that has done so much to just accelerate and exacerbate the wild polarization and gridlock and and dysfunction in our politics. And what the court does in these two cases, first out of Wisconsin and Maryland, in which they essentially punted them as far away as they possibly could, Um, And then in the case from North Carolina, um, where they um, have also really wildly uh, delayed that case from being resolved, um, is is to make it um, extraordinarily difficult to imagine a problem to this ahead of, excuse me, is is to make it extraordinarily difficult to imagine a chance for a judicial solution to this anytime before the 2020 census and the next round of redistricting, which means we are in for a 2020 round that is that much more partisan um, and, and extreme than the last round, which I don't think is what any of us want our politics to be about. Um, so then on one hand, you have this lost opportunity But then Kennedy, who is the swing justice who has been interested in this issue over the course of the last dozen years, who a lot of reformers believed um, at his core wanted to try to find a solution, and they tailored these cases out of Wisconsin, Maryland, and North Carolina exactly to the specifications that he asked for um, the last time this came before the court in the Veith case out of Pennsylvania from 2004. Um, So... But but yet he sided with the conservatives again. Yeah. Um, so on one hand, it's not enough for Kennedy to uh, a punt on this one more time. But then he retires and the balance shifts. So all of a sudden, you go from this moment of of real possibility on this on this issue to a moment in which a fifth conservative on the court could not only make um, future rulings on partisan gerrymandering non-justiciable and just take it off the table completely, but it puts independent commissions and sort of all of these electoral reforms that have tried to take districting out of the hands of politicians, out of the hands of legislatures and back into the uh, hands of people, uh, it calls all of it into question. What I found interesting was uh, reading up on the articles, and I don't get into the weeds, I'm not a lawyer, but I, I found some strange logic in the analysis that I read. And David, please correct me, but as I understand it, the court this past week decided in the Wisconsin case 
that an individual voter does not have standing to try to challenge the redistricting or the gerrymandering of his or her state. And and what the what the the justices seemed to be saying was your only recourse is to vote the party that you don't like out of office and hope that the other party, your party, redistricts better or gerrymanders better in your favor. Was that basically correct? Is that what they is that what they found? Yeah, I think that um there's a lot of truth there. Um and it's a ridiculous argument, right? Because yes. um when the politicians draw lines that are designed to make those districts completely uncompetitive and to lock in a result ahead of time, it takes away the, the meaning of your vote. Um, and when the court then says, well, you still have the right to vote in your district, so what more are you asking for? Well, I'm asking for, for the right to vote in a competitive, meaningful election in which the politicians did not draw it so that one side or the other was guaranteed to win. But the other piece of this is that they're not just drawing these as individual districts. They are drawing puzzle pieces in all of these districts that fit together to ensure one side or the other has statewide control for a decade. And then they use that statewide control to enact statewide legislation on voting rights, on women's rights, on labor rights, on the environment, on on all kinds of topics that oftentimes is not what the people of the state want. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't elect these people by you know statewide vote, but usually the number of statewide votes is a pretty you know a meaningful indicator of where the state goes. And what you want are elections that either way are responsive to a shift in voter preference. Well, it's. It's the it's the it's there's a quote about it that um, the 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 voters should have the right to pick their representatives. The representatives shouldn't have the right to pick their constituents. Right. In Ohio, we just had a ballot uh, proposal for gerrymandering, which was which just passed. Um, And so we're kind of excited about it. And we don't know what do, do, do you know, is this something that could be the road model? For other states, or is this the way that we're going to have to see get the signatures, and for every state we'll have to follow this? Is this the only other, you know, option? Before before David answers, Greg, how does how does Ohio's new model differ from, let's say, Wisconsin's or some of the other states? That and it's uh, we had to get the you know, as in the the way that we got the vote or the uh, the the end result. Well, what would be the end result? Nonpartisan group uh, gets together, but it's still a group. A commission. It's a commission. It's well, a commission. Ohio's a little bit different. Ohio okay. is a bipartisan model. Um, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and this is where I have to have to weigh in here because I grew up in New Jersey, which had a uh, which had a a bi in theory it had a bipartisan model. It was a commission of five Democrats, five Republicans, and one. A uh, professor from the Woodrow Wilson School of Public Policy at Princeton University. Uh, it has gone on for um, the 80s, the 90s, the aughts, and the and the 10s. So it is it it has gone through four iterations, uh, and the Democrats have gotten the advantage three out of the four times. And it is a reminder that the reality is in these kinds of things, and this is, and and as as troubling as problematic, excuse me, as the 
as a state, le- state legislature drawing its own districts is. The fact of the matter is my experience in New Jersey tells me that a taking it putting it in a quote-unquote nonpartisan or bipartisan commission does not necessarily solve the problem. The bipartisan, the supposedly bipartisan commission had in 2000 voted, essentially the commission voted six to five for the democratic drawn lines for the, for the, for the legislature. And in 2009, governor Chris Christie was elected and Republicans won a majority vote for the state assembly, but only won 30 of the 80 seats. Okay, so um, we you know we want to go on to other topics, but I do want to uh, give you a chance. Two questions I have, David. If you can give me give us you know relatively quick answers. First of all, aside from independent commissions, what would be another prescription for our current problem with gerrymandering? Is is any should there be, for instance, some either on the statewide, uh, you know, statewide legislation or national legislation that you know, sort of describes what a district should look like, that it should be a contiguous, you know, relative rectangle as opposed to these bizarre, you know, um, shapes that can that can look like a, a squid at some point. I mean, should there be laws like that? What, what well, that's other where the whole, That's where there? the word gerrymander actually comes from. A district was redrawn into a shape by a... a you'll, David, you'll have to remind me of the name of the politician to, to favor a particular... And uh, yeah, thank you, DJ Trivia Meister. And uh, and somebody said it looks like a salamander, and someone else replied, "No, it's a gerrymander." <laughs> um, I mean, in reality, though, I, I mean, Patrick Henry does this in the in the very first Congress trying to screw James Madison out of his seat. So it it could just as well have been the Henry Mander. Um, and and isn't isn't yeah. the isn't the irony that when that in response to that. Massachusetts, for their own state legislature, created this bizarre notion, this bizarre winner-take-all in a county notion, so that the Whigs and the Federalists could always take all of the seats in the city of Boston. Exactly, and I think you've got your finger on the real problem, which is winner takes all in a lot of ways. Um, you know, single district winner takes all is inherently distorting, um, and I think that the gold standard, as far as a, a fix on this. Um, is a bill that uh, Congressman Don Beyer of Virginia put forward last year. It's called the Fair Representation Act, which would um, replace single-member districts with multi-member districts, and you would elect uh, members with ranked choice voting in the midst of all that. So, so really what you would be able to do is by having larger districts, the lines matter less. So it, you know, it simply doesn't matter where you draw them if, if, they're, if the districts are big enough. It, it takes the, the power away from the lines. And then if you're, you're using ranked choice. Could you could you please explain the concept of ranked choice voting? We talked about it on the podcast previously, but I think that there may be people listening who don't know what we're talking about. I mean, ranked choice is essentially instant runoff. So if you have multiple candidates in a field, uh, you are able to rank your selections, one, two, three, four, five. And when the last place person is eliminated, those votes get uh, scattered up to the um, your next choice. Um, so the, the idea is that you always elect somebody who has real majority um, the support. Um, we've just come through a primary season in which a lot of the times folks emerge from primaries with 35, at 36% of the vote. You know, I mean, if you have ranked choice, um, the person who, who comes in fourth gets knocked out. 
um, and those votes get scattered up to the uh, first uh, three candidates. And it it means that the person um, who wins has the you know widest support possible. Great. Well, David Daly, we want to thank you for coming on with us. The title of the book that David has authored is Rat Fucked, with two stars in the middle, the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy. So if you're interested in learning more about gerrymandering and how it's going to affect the midterms and every election for the next 20 years, I don't know about that, but maybe the next five or 10 years, uh, look into this book, look into the work that David is doing. And again, we want to thank you, David, for coming on. So we could go on talking about uh, the Supreme Court for a lot more time, but we wanted to cover all the news that's fit to print this week. So let's let's you know we were talking about uh, Ohio, uh, which is Greg's hometown. But you know, Greg has an adopted country that he now yes. loves more than America itself. It's North Korea. I was and, uh, I I was the, in model UN. I was North Korea. It was very easy. Oh, I, sweet Jesus. Yes, it was it was Would easy. anyone sit next to you? No, because I had them executed. It was uh it was very <laughs> It was uh, it was very easy to be So North Greg, Korea. what's happening in your new hometown? Ah, it's it's wonderful. Yang. Yeah, color me shocked, but um <laughs> Like, history repeats itself, and we shouldn't be, but it seems that North Korea is, uh, breaking its promises again, and I know that DJ, no. DJ predicted It didn't make any promises. There were no promises made, so it is not actually breaking them. Okay, you, you, <laughs> you are literally, like, arguing with my nine-year-old. It's like, well, I didn't actually say I would clean my room. I just said I would move some things around. Um, so yes. I said it would be nice if it were clean. It would be That's nice if it was clean. Said. It would be nice if it was a denuclearized you know, yeah. Korean peninsula. We did they say never said we we're would gonna move do that. eventually to it. <laughs> and the best part is that you know, John the Walrus Bolton, they, they called him. They were like, so is this happening? And he's like, no, look, it's, it, it could still happen, you know, and, and the war, and that was me in college when every time a girl broke up to me and I would say, oh, we could still get married. They would say, your girlfriend's <laughs> cheating on you. We could still get married. No, she's literally there. She's on another date. We could still get married. This is going to work okay, out. Okay. Okay. So terrible so to, to sum this up. Uh, they are actually appears to be now uh, retooling its nuclear program completely. They have uh, certainly not delivered on the promise of returning remains from the Korean War. Not at all. Um, and uh, and then there was something about your dating life, which I didn't quite catch. But DJ, <laughs> which is a lot like the remains of the Korean War. <laughs> what does all this mean in terms of Trump's? You know, the, the Trump. What's the Trump doctrine going forward? Is there a Trump doctrine? I know there's probably a lot of punchlines for that, but is there a Trump doctrine of of how to relate to these foreign countries? He's got the upcoming, uh, you know, Putin. He's got the meeting, NATO, whatever they're going to call that. Dream date. Summit. It's a sleepover party. Yeah. They're the going to braid each other's later. hair. They're going to like prank call trolls. So I awesome. ask again, what is the Trump doctrine? The, the the Trump doctrine is if you are nice to Donald Trump, he will make his doctrine whatever you want. <laughs> that that that's what this is. I mean, you notice that there is not a single tweet from the big he on North Korea. 
There's not a single tweet from the big he on uh, the Chinese Communist Party doing all their other nonsense. And to me, I'm actually going to take a bit of a different angle on this. This shows to me just how thoroughly poisonous Trump has been for the Republicans in general. Now, I know I'm in very much the minority opinion, certainly on this podcast, but I used to admire Larry Kudlow and I used to admire John Bolton. Oh, you are in the minority in this podcast. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but they are now both know, essentially unbelievable. They are now both essentially denying reality for Donald Trump. Larry Kudlow says the deficit is going down. <laughs> what a liar. Lost, I nearly <laughs> lost my breakfast reading that one. Uh, this is after, of course, he, he he turned his back on 30 years of himself screaming for higher interest rates and now says he wants lower interest rates. As for John Bolton, let's be honest. If John Bolton were not in the Trump administration, do you think he would have just completely ignored what North Korea is doing? No, he already has six columns on it talking about how North Korea has fucked us over again and why we need to do something about it. But Donald Trump has essentially given North Korea what it wants. It gave them it, he gave them legitimacy. He gave them the end of those military exercises. And now they're basically banking that and doing whatever the hell they want anyway. And the Republican Party, which used to be the party that was more aggressive in defending America's interests abroad, are now the party more interested in uh, in isolating America, more interested in mm-hmm. building fortress America, more interested in putting their heads in the sand because Donald Trump tells them to. It is, I mean, it is a, it is two things. One, the world is less safe than it was last year, and two, the Republican Party continues to show it is a broken down jalopy when it comes to America's interests abroad. Yeah, but they've rat fucked all our districts. So, you know, they can remain in charge (laughs) just to loop it back to David. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And and, and by the way, then looking at our, uh, our neighbors on the South, Mexico apparently has a new president I'm not familiar with this gentleman, Obrador. Uh, Andres, anybody Ma- wanted to- Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Obrador. Okay. And how is he going to change my world, Greg? Uh, he's a he's a left leaning populist. Um, he's not left leaning. He's left falling over. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Without a doubt, he's um he's uh, he's for. He's NAFTA. He's social change. He's against the crime syndicates. He's uh, he's going to defend- wait. Okay, isn't everyone against the crime syndicates? No, no. Have you? Is not there anyone been? who's like for the crime syndicates? N- not in not in oh. not in Mexico. The the outgoing um, president Pien- uh, Pena Nieto yeah. and the Institutional Revolutionary Party, which is his party, generally tends to be pretty friendly to the crime syndicate. Yeah, yeah, without a That's doubt. That's troubling. <laughs> So, so how will this change Mexico's foreign policy toward the United States? Well, he's actually said that he's going to try to be friendlier to President Trump, um, even <laughs> though he, he disagrees. Yeah, President he disagrees Trump will with him. to change that in like a minute. No, no but- I, I actually I, I'm, I'm going to talk over Greg because sure, I've, right been, I've been following this, too. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to get to the point that Greg is eventually going to stumble to because, well, I'm <laughs> drunk and I can't tolerate his, his pussyfooting anymore. Uh, go ahead. Say it. Do DJ it. made a drinking joke. Everybody drink. <laughs> yeah, my I've I've I had three fireball shots and I've had minutes. only root beer tonight. So go ahead. What the hell is wrong with you, Greg? Um, but this Obrador is likely going to get more upset at Trump's nonsense than uh, Pena Nieto did. 
Uh, he's more likely to say, all right, F you, I'm pulling out of NAFTA too, which is what Trump wants, but it's not what anybody else wants. What you're likely to see is it's more likely that NAFTA will not survive the renegotiation, which means, Kevin, prices of all sorts of shit that you buy are going to go up and your standard of living is going to fall. Oh, good. Sweet. That's going to go great with the rising interest rates and the steel tariffs. I am so excited for the next three years. Buy a car today, kids. Buy it today. (laughs) The More Perfect Union. Real debate without the hate. Available on iTunes and Stitcher. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. As if if DJ hasn't railed enough tonight. DJ, what about uh, the... the situation with the trade wars and uh, Trump wanting to leave the WTO, the World Trade Organization. First of all, Kevin, thank you for allowing me to have a trade war segment, despite the fact that I've stepped on every other segment. I really appreciate that. Uh, we have GM and BMW and uh, Mid-Continental. Harley Davidson. And Harley Davidson. It's, it's basically been every, you know, all of the corporations. Every company that uses metal. Yes, every company that uses metal is basically saying, oh, shit, we've got to change our priorities. And, of course, Donald Trump, who is dumb enough to think that trade wars are like his Vietnam, so he thinks everybody should patriotically march behind him. By the way, I'm a registered trade war conscientious objector. Actually, there's no registration for that, but as soon as there is one, I'm doing it. Uh, Just he doesn't understand economics. He doesn't understand international economics. I've been over, over and over again. But we are now seeing genuine casualties from this trade war mid-continental nail which is our biggest nail producer in this country is basically saying we could be out of business in september because we we rely on imported aluminum and steel i'm not sure which one and the tariffs are making mean we can't stay in business harley davidson had said has already said look your trade war is leading to eu tariffs that we'd rather avoid so we're shifting production out of the country and oh, by the way, the only reason we have production in Thailand is because you pulled out of TPP, you fucking numbnut. Uh, so we're just going there to avoid tariffs. GM, General Motors, has said these tariffs, uh, our tariffs on steel and EU tariffs on cars are going to hurt our sales. And, you know, there was a time when I remember somebody just said simply what's good for General Motors is good for the USA. Mm-hmm. You know, those people tend to be Trumpists. Well, General Motors is saying, hey, this is bad for General Motors. That should be enough to get their fucking attention. And finally, so I have... just want to say that fucking numbnuts was the name of my college band. Okay, very good. Uh, but what was the name <laughs> of Greg's college band? I forget. <laughs> but finally, you have BMW, a German car maker who is putting resources into a South Carolina plant saying, you know, this is going to hurt. You know, the steel and aluminum tariffs are going to raise prices for us, which means we can't hire as many people. And the various retaliatory tariffs are going to affect our exports, which means we can't sell to as many people, which means we're not going to hire as many people. We are seeing jobs lost due to Donald Trump's trade war. And, of course, Donald Trump doesn't care because he's a fucking moron. And it just really, really upsets me because, I mean, honestly, I know this sounds weird to people, but freer trade was one of the reasons I stayed in the Republican Party for so long. Because they were the party of freer trade and Democrats were the party of protectionism. Now, Republicans are clearly the party of protectionism because they do anything Donald Trump says. I hope that Democrats recognize that there are votes in freer trade because freer trade can be better for the American economy. And I hope that Democrats recognize that in 2018 and 2020. We will see. But I know for certain that Donald Trump's trade war is a disaster. 
which is why I'm a trade war conscientious objector. You need a theme song, you know, like a, tra- a trade war conscientious objector theme song. You know, something that would be like in a Marvel movie score. No, something more like Barry Maguire, Eve of Destruction. Something like really angry, <laughs> but about finance, you know. The WTO, there is a hating. I am now ready to re-lyricize Eve of Destruction and make it about a trade war. I want that you to. That's what we're asking. Awesome. But, that was awesome, need, Kevin. And you need to do this. You need to record it, and you need to put it up on the website for this all of us to download and enjoy. Yeah, this is on. This is definitely on my to-do list. We actually have listeners who've wanted to hear your band, by the way, DJ. Yes. Yes, I know. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll make them play. Why haven't you uploaded any tracks from your band onto the website? Are you going to make us come to Comic-Con or something so we can hear you? Maybe. So let's talk about something uh, a little bit on the the more upbeat side, because so much of this has been so pleasant to discuss. Uh, <laughs> we have a new congresswoman in waiting in New York City. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez beat Joe Ocasio-Crowley. <laughs> Crowley. <laughs> no, she beat Joe Crowley, who is a longstanding congressman there. Now she's going to, uh, apparently, because it's such a blue district, she's a shoe in to be elected. Guys, does this change anything? Or I mean, obviously, it's great to have new young blood in Congress, for that matter, in any elected office. Uh, she's energetic. She's obviously very far le- uh, to the left. But does it change anything in the dynamic of what's happening in the midterms? No, it doesn't. It's you know, for one thing, this is a redrawn district. Crowley's district does not look exactly like it did. So that you know, it's speaking to what we were talking about earlier, um, and. Crowley, he tried to coast. He, you know, he didn't show up for debates. He didn't put a lot into it. He didn't think a primary challenger was a real a real issue for him. And it turned out she was. And she tapped into a certain kind of energy in her district that maybe only she could have tapped into. She is looking at a young district, a diverse district, and she spoke to that in a really interesting and energizing way. And, you know, she's not she's not an empty suit. She's got a lot of chops. She, she knows what she's doing. And she's also being really gracious in victory, which I like about her. So she is a lesson in match your candidate to your district. You know, bring the person that the voters are excited to show up for. Bring them into the election And capitalize on that. You know, don't make this about what the Democratic Party is supposed to look like. Make it what the district does look like. Now, the other thing that we really should talk about, um, Crowley was probably being groomed to take over leadership for Pelosi. He was was like the he was like the fourth most powerful. Yeah, fourth most powerful. Yeah, and and Pelosi hates Hoyer, so. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So with that in mind, we really need to talk about the fact that most of Democratic leadership is they're all above what, like the age of 75. But everybody knows that that's been in the news forever. This has been in the news forever. But the thing is, we really should look at this. She's young. She's dynamic. Well, she's young. She's going to be a backbencher. She's a first termer. She's not going to change anything for the next five years. She's not going, but she won dramatically maybe we should and maybe she's a sign of the times that we should look at new leadership and that's what she's hearkening well no i'm gonna i'm gonna respectfully disagree greg i mean listen i'm in favor of new leadership i think nancy pelosi was a magnificent speaker 
She I was agree. a magnificent minority leader, and it is time for her to step aside. And I agree, and it. that's what I'm saying here. But I'm just saying I don't think the election of Ocasio-Cortez has anything to do with that. First of all, if Joe Crowley was an important Democrat, that's news to me. I do not believe I'd ever seen the man on television before he lost his election. So this idea that he was next in line, I maybe he was, but I sure didn't know who he is. And he was he was not a national figure. It's not. It's he was. He had not. He had made his ambition to be speaker very obvious, and he was, you know, somewhere high up in leadership. He was the fourth most powerful Democrat in the House. Um, right. But you know what? George Miller was the fourth most powerful Democrat in the House right. before he retired, and you've never heard of him either. So, right. but you know what? Just yeah, it just it just proves that elections that that primaries matter, that elections matter, that we have changing demographics, and it's not a bad thing. And and I'm. I can almost guarantee you that the moment the vote count was finalized, Nancy Pelosi and Tom Perez and the head of the D-Trip, whose name is completely escaping me right now, were on the phone with her saying, hey, we're going to stay out of your way. Do what you got to do. What do you need? Oh, of course they're going to support her. And of course she's going to win. Right. and they're But they're going to start offering her opportunities to flex a little bit when she gets into the house and they're going to let her go out on the trail and help fundraise for other people because they recognize that she has a lot of value, that she can bring a lot of energy and a lot of voters. I bet you we'll see her in 2020 speaking at the convention. We'll see her going out and campaigning for other candidates. They're going to make use of her in really cool ways because she is a really cool candidate and they should. Yes, I agree. Okay, I, I, I'm I'm the dose of cold water. No, that's, you are. You are, you are. That's what you're here for. Okay, I'm I'm just doing this to put a little heat in the show. Okay, so I know people people are going to hate me, but that's okay because people hate me regardless of what I say. She's a 28 year old Democratic socialist who, as recently as about a year, year and a half ago, was a New York bartender. Okay, she has. Very limited experience. Now, I'm not dissing what she's done. It sounds like I am. You know, obviously, representatives are supposed to be every men, and they can come from any walk of life and any career. There's nothing wrong with a bartender becoming a congressperson. Right. Okay? But let's not overstate, one, what happened in her district, and two, the effect it's going to have on the body politic. The woman won a a primary race with 13% of the registered voters in her district showed up to vote. What I think happened was Crowley's supporters were so sure he was going to win that they just didn't bother to vote. Yeah, and, and she had a, and she had a she had a little over 15,000 votes, he had a little over 11, 12,000 votes. It's still an impressive victory. But it's an impressive victory in a very, very small sample of voters in that district. All right. Let, let me add one more thing. Let me add one more thing. She got people excited. She got a lot of people 15, excited. 15,000 of them. I'm not talking about then. I'm talking about now. Okay. People are now excited about but her. But that's what I'm saying. Why? For what? Why? She's going to be a backbencher. She's going to take her four years just to figure out how the place works. 
it's not going to take her four years to figure out how. And granted, maybe she's got this whole Mr. Smith goes to Washington thing going on. But that's exciting. And you know what people are excited about? And maybe that's what the Democrats have been missing. I I don't know if you remember, but in 2006, when Barack Obama was elected and people were asking him what he was going to do in the Senate, he said, I'm going to be a first term senator. They're going to have me sharpening pencils. And next thing you know, he was president. And I'm not saying she's another Barack Obama because we all know he was a once in a generation politician. But, you know, know getting elected to Congress means you you're you're pretty smart. Your learning curve is not super steep. And she'll figure this out. As long as she hires a good chief of staff to keep her office organized, she's going to do great. Yep. Yep. She's going to be fine. And I got a feeling that if the Democrats keep hiring, uh, keep finding young, smart, capable people, we're going to keep on winning elections. And and I'm not and I know that sounds ageist, but. But you know what? It's not ageist because we have baby boomers are 75, 80 years old. Generation X is well into their 40s. It's not ageist to look at people in their 30s and regard them as adults who are capable of taking some power. That's true. The I know that my parents' generation has sort of not yet retired is a little weird. Actually. I know, I know. But when we talk about 80 year olds, Kevin gets upset that we're talking about yeah, and, and, and by the way, <laughs> and by the way, she ain't in her 30s. I'm telling you, she's 28. She's a very charismatic woman. She'll be practically 30 by the time she's seated. Give her, you know, we're we're almost there. Okay, so I've been told that uh, DJ is having a little trouble with his Skype connection, so he's, uh, we lost him, but he's going to jump back on any moment. In the meantime, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, every week we do the Swing District Report. Uh, Usually it's me talking about CA25 in California, a Swing District where one Katie Hill is going up against the incumbent Republican Steve Knight. I've talked about that race a couple of times, but this week we're going to look at a brand new swing district. Greg, what's happening in your state of Ohio? Well, you know, Wednesday I was so depressed about Anthony Kennedy's retirement and about everything else that I actually volunteered. I swore I wasn't going to volunteer to do any work um, except for voter registration this year. And but this year I said I that I was so depressed I went out and I did some canvassing for uh, Christine Fisher in um, Ohio 27 for her Senate race against um, I'm not even going to mention the SOB she's running against um, and there she is right on the edge of making it um it's not a congressional race it's a state senate race um and it was also a bunch of down tickets including governor richard cordray um and um who else was on that ticket oh a bunch uh, of uh, judicial governor races. governor candidate oh, gubernatorial candidate, candidate, candidate excuse me yeah. yeah right for for ohio I, right. uh, he's going to replace hopefully that asshole Kasich. um <laughs> I, I didn't. It's been a while got, since you called him an asshole. I'm really I happy know, that you, you I know, did that. It felt really good. It felt really good. So, um, I spent a couple hours in like 90 degree weather walking. Um, no one was home, and it was, you know, sorry, mostly it was a lit drop. I talked to a couple people. Um, and the best part about it was the last door I went to. Um, and if you've ever done canvassing, um, you knock on doors and you say, hi, I'm such and such. And I'd like to ask you questions. And would you like to volunteer? And they always say no. Or would you like a yard sign? Or it's, it's really, it's really depressing. Cause they say, <laughs> Kevin knows because they go, I don't know who you're talking about. And you're like, 
it's it's almost July. How do you not know these candidates? And so that um, brings me to what I want to kind of wrap up about, which is we yeah. talk about we talk about politics and we get a little wonky, you know, covering it. And thank gosh, there's a, a lot of people that still want to hear us do, you know, our analysis. But I sometimes think that the more interesting stuff is our experiences when we're talking about politics with other people. And, you know, one thing that we've talked about on this this podcast many times is we're all active in social media, especially on Facebook, and we tend to interact with people on Facebook that are just like us, that are really politically aware. Most of them tend to be against Trump these days, but he has his core supporters, and they can be very articulate too. But the reason that I'm doing that is to contrast when you actually go out into the streets and start canvassing the way Greg did this week or I did last week. And Rebecca, I'm sure you've done this a few times in your life, probably many oh, times. Yeah. And you start talking to to real people, quote unquote. I mean, we're all real people. But you oh, start I'm not. Talking I'm a blow-up doll. You start talking to the people that you come across in everyday life, and a lot of them just don't care, or they have no idea, or they do care, but their political philosophy is so out there that there's nothing to there's no connection that is possible um, right it's and, it's, well, it's fascinating this, yeah i was talking about this with my sister today because you know she follows things very minutely as well and and is is always deeply concerned about the implications of every every single small announcement every single headline and i had you know i had to sort of pull her back from the ledge and be like listen you know what we're unusual we follow this a lot more minutely than other people do we are way more wrapped up in this we're way more sensitive to it normal people are getting their oil changed and like grilling hot dogs and and thinking about their regular lives and they're probably happier than we are um but you you know you can't confuse the internet chattering class with typical people who watch the evening news and then let it go so brings me back to how do we change all this? Look, what I the one thing that I wanted to communicate on this podcast, and I didn't really get a chance to talk about it until now, is I see people up in arms. We have to stop Trump from filling the seat before the midterms, or we have to stop him from appointing a, a radical who's going to overturn Roe. We none of that is going to be possible. What is is he is the president of the United States. He will fill that seat with whoever the he- the F he wants to put in it. My question is, how do we stop him from filling the Ruth Bader Ginsburg seat? And how do we stop him from filling the Stephen Breyer seat? How do we stop a bad situation from becoming geometrically worse with time? And the only answer I have is, we have to win the midterms big, and we have to win in 2020. It cannot be an option for Donald Trump to be reelected president, because the country that we know, only only a shell of it will be left. Life will still go on. People will still go horseback riding and go to baseball games. But a lot of the things that we take for granted, especially a lot of the progressive advancements of the last 50, 80 years, will either be deemed, repealed, or just hollowed out just enough that they won't be there for our kids. So, why can't Democrats – I know I'm on a soapbox here and I'm kind of rambling. I, I apologize. That's okay. I do, Kevin, I do it all the time and everybody seems to love it. So go ahead. <laughs> hey, DJ's back. Uh, why can't Democrats figure out a way to just register more voters? 
stop stop all of the the nonsense about having debates with Trump about whether Sarah Sanders they were rude to her at the Red Hen or whether this person, you know, did this to him or whether he said that but then he changed his mind. We should just be focusing on getting more voters to the polls. Why can't we do that? First because of all, it's really hard not to respond when you're directly insulted. It's it's one of the most difficult things in the world to let criticism and outright lies roll off your back. And we all want to instinctively jump in when he tweets but Rebecca, outright lies. I'm sorry, and, I'm going to interrupt and, you, and Rebecca. The argument, and that's not uh, Rebecca. I well, you've talked about this enough that I know you're thinking on this. The key to winning in 2018 is turning out Democrats. Exactly. So I come back to you. Why isn't every freaking Democrat in the House and Senate having advanced voter registration pushes run out of their offices? Why isn't every one of them in their districts this summer doing everything they can to get more people in their districts onto the voter registration rolls? Well, Mitch McConnell canceled recess, so that's part of it in the Senate. Yeah, yeah, the other Um, thing I would know— Why it's not happening in the House is because they are behaving like numbnuts. Hang on. The, 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 the other reason, the reason that may be actually more important than, the, than all of those, is the fact that those things, at least here in Virginia, are the responsibility of the local Democratic committees. And I know as someone who serves on the Suffolk Democratic Committee that they are looking at voter registration and they are making efforts. I mean, canvassing is all about identifying who, who is your voters and then making sure that they show up and vote. So the kind of things that Kevin, that you want to see out of your congressman is actually something you should see out of your local Democratic committee. They failed, DJ. We gave them the chance. We've given them the chance every two years. They failed. Hang on well, a second. I wonder, are there prohibitions on members of Congress registering voters? I don't know what the, know what the laws are on that. There may be. I don't know that. But, but with, all, with all due respect, Kevin, your local committee and my local committee did not fail because the Democrats have won both of our states. Now, if there are issues in other states, like say, oh, say Greg's in Ohio, oh, then yeah? that's not going to be something congressmen would solve as much as it would be an issue between Democratic state committees or even the Democratic National Committee would have to get involved, perhaps. But the fact of the matter is when it comes to – I mean all I can talk about is what's happening here in Suffolk. And Suffolk does place a priority in voter registration. They do place a priority on getting sure our voters are out. And frankly, if 2017 was any indication – we're going to do very, very well next fall because of how well we did here in Virginia last fall. So the the question is, is someone doing it and is someone doing it well? It doesn't necessarily have to be members of Congress. But the question for, for, for Democrats out there is, is my local Democratic committee doing what I think it should be doing? And if not, then you show up at the local Democratic committee and tell them, hey – there are DJ. things you should not be doing. DJ, Here's how not, I can help you do them. You're not wrong, but people don't, people don't go to their local Democratic committee hearings. People don't know who their local Democratic officials are. They I barely do. know who the vice president of the United States is. And there, and the the people, but the people who listen to us, and the people who do care about this stuff. See, the fact of the matter is, again, half the reason I became a Democrat, let alone a Democratic activist, was because I knew there are so many people. And again, one thing we also don't talk about is there are a lot of folks in marginalized constituencies, marginalized communities, excuse me, who are just trying to get through from day to day, for whom the notion of getting involved in politics is exhausting because they're just trying to survive. 
I know I'm in a position where, you know, I'm a, I'm a cis straight white guy who has a pretty decent job security. I know I'm in a good position to get through to 2020. So I feel a little more of an obligation to, to get my hands dirty and get involved. For those of you who are in that situation, I would tell you, yes, I would tell you, go ahead and get involved. The issue here is not, you know, I, I know, Kevin, you, you, you get, you're very upset at non-voters, and I understand why. But the fact of the matter is the best thing that we can do is reach out to them and explain to them, look, this is why you should be voting. This is what you should be doing. But in most cases, that's the responsibility of your local Democratic committee. Don't yell at your congressman in your case because you know what you're doing. Yell at your local Democratic committee. Find out what they're doing. Help them. Help what they're doing. And if they're not doing something that's sufficient in your mind, tell them, hey, I think you should be doing XYZ PDQ, and here's how I can help you do it. Okay. Any last thoughts on the week of news that you want to leave us with? This is true. The Trump administration is essentially trying to replace the WTO and everything else that we've done with the Fair and Reciprocal Trade Act, which will give him the power to raise tariffs whenever the hell he wants on whatever the hell he wants. But more importantly to those low information voters, the Fair and Reciprocal Trade Act is essentially the FART Act. So Donald Trump wants to replace our entire international trade system with the FART Act. So I will likely be railing against the FART Act on Independence Day. Fight the FART. (laughs) And with that, we want to thank everyone for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at hashtag MPU Podcast and on Facebook at facebook.com slash moreperfectunionpodcast. And please share our link on your Facebook timeline and tell your friends about us so they can discover us as well. And with that, DJ, what's going to be the slogan for the FART Act? Create jobs by pulling my finger. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Holiday tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Did you know there are over 10,000 wine grape varieties worldwide? Here's to thousands of gift possibilities. My go-to holiday wine is Chardonnay. I love it with turkey and potatoes. Pile on the gravy. Let me show you our more than 8,000 party-perfect wines that are in your budget and out of this world. Whether you're entertaining or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection with you this holiday. Now offering same-day delivery at TotalWine.com. Cheers!